0: You know, I thought i 'd do something a little different today, and i don 't really know what 's going to happen. I mean, I have a general idea of what I want to say, but I think that 's sort of the, the, uh, the point is uh, that the medium will be the message here in terms of what I want to talk about. And I think you know even though we 're limited in time, if i 'm saying something and you really don 't get it or you have a question, go ahead and raise your hand we 'll be a little bit interactive today, so that adds a whole nother level of unknown, you see. And just <laughs> so, no notes. I'm just gonna, I just want to talk for you a bit, with you a bit. Um, last week, Frank was talking about uh, duality versus, he didn't use the word, but unitive consciousness. Ooh, ah. But he was talking about duality. He was talking about the fact that we process things, you know, as polar opposites. And if we really want to move into the kind of kingdom connection, that Jesus is talking about, then we're going to have to deal with what we normally deal with as opposites. You know, we, we've got we've got sin, we've got actions that that are mating over here with other things that we see as righteousness or, or complete rest in the spirit, and those seem to be polar opposites. But how do we process them if we're going to be not? working in duality, but working in some kind of unity. And that's really the issue. Frank brought that all up. I want to kind of jump off from there and talk about how it is that we actually start to work toward that unity, that unity of consciousness, that leaving duality behind. And to start with, I want you to think about how your minds work, how your brains work. Because really, when you think about it, the only thing that your mind does is make distinguishments, right? What our mind actually does is compare and contrast. It finds the edges of things. it It distinguishes one thing from another. I mean, think about it, you know I'm sitting here and I'm looking at cowboy. How do I know what's cowboy? <laughs> it's all based on contrast, isn't it? If I can't find the edges of Cowboy, as I'm looking at him right now, there's, there's no Cowboy there. Why does camouflage work in the jungle or in the desert? Because it blurs the edges. It erases the edges. And so you don't see anymore. So my looking at Cowboy and seeing him as Cowboy... Is because I'm seeing the edges that make him distinct from the background, distinct from everyone around him. I'm seeing facial features that I am judging and thinking about and might go through my mental Rolodex and say, okay, that's cowboy as distinct from anyone else. This is the way our mind works. Your senses work the same way. It's a catalog. This smell, not that smell. This scent means this. This scent triggers this. This scent triggers that. You know, touch the same way. But if you really think about what our minds are doing, they are always comparing and contrasting. They are always pitting one thing against another, and it's absolutely necessary. What would life be like if we couldn't do that, if we couldn't make those kinds of connections, if we didn't find the edges of things? We couldn't navigate through life. We wouldn't be able to survive. This is the part of us, and we share it with the animal kingdom, you know, to an extent, To be able to make those kinds of distinctions, we've got to be able to make those kinds of distinctions. Our life depends upon it and our survival depends upon it. But here's the interesting thing. Even though our survival depends on our ability to make distinctions, what we talk about as happiness, what we talk about as contentment, what we talk about as meaning or purpose or even our identity is not based on making distinctions, but on erasing those distinctions. On being able to see things not as separate pieces and parts, but as one whole. Our minds are working against us. They're saving us on one hand, (laughs) and they're working against us in terms of the things that we count as human beings to be our basic purpose in life which most of us would say is to find the peace, to find the serenity, to find the contentment, to find the, the, the purpose, and to figure out finally who we are. It's, it's so interesting the way this is all set up. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. But that which allows us to survive physically is also chipping away at our ability to find why we're really here spiritually. See, this is why the shape of the journey is so important and i know we've gone over this before but the overall shape of our spiritual journey the motif that runs through the bible from start to finish is always the descent and then the ascent on the other side descent ascent in terms of jesus' uh, passion it's often called the paschal mystery this is the jesus dying going into sheol and coming back the other side into his ascension and resurrection that shape, he called it the, the sign of Jonah when he was asked for a sign, right? Jonah going into the belly of the whale for three days, that, that, that significant number, symbolic number, and coming out the other side. But everywhere you see 40 in the Bible, it's that shape reasserting itself. 40 means a time of trial and testing into a rebirth, the symbolic meaning of that number. So wherever you see those 40s, it's the same shape. It's the descent before the ascent. So why? Why is that pervasive? Why does that appear over and over and over again? How many of you in here have heard me talk about the hero's journey or rites of passage? Okay, how many have not heard me talk about that? Are a few? Okay. So there's a few, but you know, we're not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but this is the, the pattern reasserting itself. Joseph Campbell, who was a famous anthropologist of the 50s and 60s and into the 80s, anyway, he wrote a seminal book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And in that book, what he proposed was that there's one story that we tell ourselves over and over and over again. Since we were painting on cave walls until last week, (laughs) until today, we've been telling ourselves one story over and over again. He calls it the monomyth. It is the story of the hero's journey. It is the same shape, though. The shape is what we need to key in on. That's going to help us to balance between this, this necessary duality of the way our minds work and the unity that we're looking for, even if we don't quite know it yet. And so all these stories from Odysseus going to Troy and coming back again to uh, Percival looking for the Holy Grail, his search for the Holy Grail, to Luke Skywalker, to Dorothy Gale in The Wizard of Oz, to Neo in The Matrix, all of these are heroes' journeys. And most of the stories that you look at, whether they're movies or books, they're gonna have the same shape. And the shape is always that you start with the hero or the heroine in his or her familiar life, in their in their the life that they know, that they're comfortable with. And then something happens to take them out of that life. Either it's their own yearning for something else, their own dissatisfaction, or it's something that comes in and jars them and moves them out of the comfortable place. You know, think of, of Frodo in the in the Lord of the Rings, right? Moves them out of the comfortable place into another world that all the rules are different. Everything has changed. You know, there, there's monsters and there's, there's supernatural characters and, and they have no idea how the rules work, no idea what's going on. And then a guide shows up and gives them a tool or a boon, something that they can use to be able to navigate. And they're given instructions and there's challenges and things that they need to do. And if they can navigate that new world, but they can make the full circuit, they come back to where they started, but not the same person again. Familiar story, right? It mirrors the rite of passages that, that mankind has been doing since the dawn of time, where you have a separation, a transition, and a reincorporation. The shorthand for us is the Aborigines walkabout. When boys are at the age to become men at 13 or 14, 12, They are taken by the men out of the company of women, out of the the tribal center, out into the bush. There are ceremonies out there that usually involve cutting and some kind of bloodshed, because there's always a wounding at the beginning of these stories. And then the little boy has to walk the bush for up to six months by himself, using the song lines that he has been drilled by his tribe since birth to guide him, to be able to navigate through the wilderness for up to six months with no tools, nothing, just dropped off. (laughs) I remember sometimes when I was driving Brennan home when he was little, I'd say, if I dropped you off right here, would you know how to get home? No, don't do it. That's essentially what you're doing with these these, these 12-year-olds. You're dropping them off in the middle of the bush and saying, okay, find your way home. Sometimes these boys travel hundreds of thousands of kilometers using their song lines, having to fend for themselves, knowing what plants are poisonous, what plants can heal wounds, how to fashion their their, 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 their weapons or their tools, how they can get food, how they can make fire, all this they need to do. And at the same time while they're out there, they're using the song lines to connect to generations upon generations of their people in a spiritual way, finding their interior silence, finding their connection, so that when they do return to the tribe, they are recognized as men within that tribe. They have proven themselves physically, and they have proven themselves spiritually as well. They have combined both the mind's ability to make the distinctions, to be able to survive under harsh conditions, but they've found that unitive consciousness, that place of oneness as well. And they bring that back into the tribe. Think about Dorothy Gale. Think about the Wizard of Oz. She's in black and white Kansas. She's yearning for something else, right? She's not with her parents. There's some trauma back there that is backstory that we aren't told about. She's living with her aunt and uncle. She's useless on the farm. She doesn't want to be on the farm. She's always singing about something over the rainbow. And when she runs off and then has to try to come back, Then the cyclone takes her to Oz. And she's in this beautiful land that she always wanted to to experience. But what happens when she gets there? All she can think about is getting back home. So for Dorothy, the call to the hero's journey, the call to this, this deeper consciousness, was felt as a deep dissatisfaction. She sees it as trying to find something outside of herself, something out there over the rainbow that will come in and fulfill her in a way that she does not feel fulfilled, heal the broken spaces and the trauma that's left from whatever is in her past. When she gets there, then she sees the journey as getting back home again. But she's thinking getting back home again. Now that will even everything out, bring back the equilibrium, bring back my meaning and purpose. And when she finally meets up with the wizard and he gives her what he feels is an impossible task to bring back the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West, then she thinks that's her journey. She's got to get the broomstick. But it's all in service of. It's a means to an end to get back home again. And here's the key to a hero's journey. Really think about this because it's going to be the key to your journey and my journey and everyone's journey. Dorothy is completely caught up in leaving home, getting back home, doing all of the individual tasks that she needs to do in order to complete the journey as she sees it. But there's a moment right toward the end of the movie when everything that she's trying to do, every resource that she has, has has worked on, betrays her, flees, and the balloon is sailing off because Toto messed up the exit right. <laughs> And all of a sudden, she's feeling completely forlorn. She doesn't know what to do anymore. The wrong idea we have about the hero's journey, the journey of our lives, is that it's a journey of acquisition, that there's something that we have to get out there to bring in to make ourselves whole. What the journey really is, it's a journey to the point of release. As she stands there, as the balloon is sailing out of sight, Glinda comes back into the picture and says, You already had everything you needed to go home any you wanted. You had the ruby slippers on the entire time. And there is a moment there where suddenly she, even if she's not completely sure, she gives herself over to this power within herself. Her traveling companions... Right? Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Lion, those were just her own interior attributes. That was her own intelligence. That was her own compassion. Her own fortitude that was always there but gets built up. You know, the story shows them as external characters, but it's her own interior attributes that she didn't know she had being built up. And when the wizard, fraud that he is, shows each one of those characters that they already had everything that they needed. He gives them a little testimonial. She realizes at the same time she has everything that she needs to do what she needs to do. And she clicks those heels and she ends up back in black and white Kansas with the same ring of faces around her. And what does she say? Next time I go looking for my heart's desire, I'm not gonna go looking any further than my own backyard because if it's not there, never really lost it to begin with. What she realizes in that journey is that it's not about finding something that she doesn't have. It's about releasing what she thought she knew about the journey. The journey is not about the details. The journey is not about the tasks. The journey is not about the accomplishments. It's not about overcoming the challenges. But here's the difficult part. We have to take those challenges and those tasks absolutely seriously if the journey is going to lead us where it's supposed to lead us. But if we take them too seriously, if we think they are everything, then we will never get where the journey is leading. Because the journey is always leading somewhere deeper. The journey is always leading beneath all of those things that lay on the surface of our lives. It's the same shape, you see. We have to descend beneath all the things that we think are going on in our lives so that we can ascend on the other side, come back to the place that we started, knowing it for the first time, and actually having something that we can gift our community with that we couldn't do before. Think about stories from the Bible. Think about Abraham, right? Abraham was called by God to leave the land, the land of his, you know, between the the rivers in Mesopotamia, comfortable, built up, it's the city, everything is great. Leave that land and go to a land that I will show you, out into the wilderness. Classic start of a hero's journey, right? He's in the land that's comfortable for him, everything he's already always known, and he has to leave that. He thinks it's about finding a new land for himself and for his family. And then God tells him, I will make you a father of many nations, a great nation, so many that the stars, you know, they're like the stars that can't be counted or grains of sand on the beach. Then he thinks it's about this posterity, he thinks it's about that, but then he realizes he doesn't have an heir. How is he going to be able to have this great nation that God is talking about if he doesn't have an heir? And so he starts, like Dorothy, using everything that's available to him. And he uses the handmaiden, and he fathers Ishmael, and all that goes on. And when he's 100 years old and Sarai's 100 years old, God promises them a child, and they laugh. But the child is born. He thinks then the child is the agent of God's promise. The child is all about the journey. Yitzhak, which means laughter, Isaac. That's the way this is all going to take place. And then God takes him to the top of Mount Moriah and says, sacrifice your son. And we think, why in the world would God do that? What's going on here? But see, this is the climax. This is the point of Abraham's heroic journey where he finally realizes what it's all about. He thought it was about all these other things. But on that mountain, facing the sacrifice of his son, the agent of God's promise, instead of trying to acquire what he thinks the journey is about, He releases, he lets go. And he becomes willing to kill even the promise, the miracle child. That wasn't God's intent. But what it was, was that point of release where he realizes that it's his faith, his absolute conviction that no matter what is happening on the ground at any given moment, God's promise will not come back void. It will be fulfilled. That bedrock faith, became the beginning of the three great monotheistic religions that we have today. He had to release and to release. How about Moses? Moses gets the call from God. he's, he's 40 years in the, in the backwater of the Midian. His first 40 was as a prince of Egypt. He gets in trouble there, he flees. he ends up with Jethro and he marries there and he has a family. He's a shepherd for 40 years. And then God calls him from the burning bush to go back to Egypt and call his people out. last thing in the world he wants to do. But there's that wounding, right? But he goes. And he thinks the journey is about bringing his people out. He thinks the journey is about battling Pharaoh and battling the elements and everything that was needed to get his people to that promised land, to that land in Canaan. But when he is at 40 years later, at the top of Mount Nebo. Looking out over the promised land. He can see it from the shores of the Western Sea all the way to the Jordan. It's all stretched out before him. And he has that moment of release. He realizes that the land that God promised his people, promised him, was not the real estate that's rolled out before him. It is the relationship of a people to their God. So different. And he realizes at that moment, in that relationship of the people directly to their God, of nations directly to their God, there's no more place for him. He has become a divine distraction. They have relied too heavily on him for too long. They have imprinted on him. He stands between the people and their God, and he lays down his life for his people. Dies on that mountain, never goes in. But it was his moment of release when he realized, what is this journey about? Think about Solomon, young boy, taking over the throne for his father David. He, God comes to him in a dream and says, what is it that you desire? And he says, I'm just a kid. I don't know how to rule a nation. What do I do here? I need your wisdom, Lord. I need to be able to, to rule these people and rule it wisely and rule them justly. God is pleased with that and grants him wisdom and he pursues that wisdom but because he asked for wisdom God says I'm also going to give you all the things that you didn't ask for the power and the wealth I'm going to give you the long life and he gets all that and it's not till the very end of his life as he records in the book of Ecclesiastes that comes his moment of release and when we read Ecclesiastes it sounds so depressing <laughs> it sounds so dark but It is a man at the end of his life realizing what the journey was really about. It wasn't about all of the things he thought. It wasn't about all the public works he did. It wasn't about all the vast accumulation of wealth. It wasn't about all the concubines. It wasn't even about the wisdom itself that he treasured above everything. Because he realizes even the fool is going to die as I'm going to die. And the sun falls on the just and the unjust. What does he say? Even a... Live dog is better than a dead lion. <laughs> There's just so many images in Ecclesiastes. It's his moment of release. He realizes it is not about everything that I thought it was. It's about this much deeper place. And he lays down his life's work for his people. This is the shape of the journey. This is the way it works. It's a wonderful movie. If you get a chance to see it, I mean, i would be everybody's cup of tea, but I liked it. It's called Hero, appropriately enough. And it's set in the warring states period of China, which is like, I don't know, second, third century BC, where China broke down into seven warring nations. And there is a nameless swordsman whose community, his kingdom, was devastated by a neighboring king. And he has vowed vengeance on this king. And he has spent his whole life Training, martial arts, so that he can assassinate and kill that king as vengeance for what he did to his people and his family. And as he is getting ready to um, um, attack the king, he comes across another swordsman that he has to defeat first, who is called Broken Sword, appropriately enough. Very allegorical. Broken Sword had the same agenda. He was going to kill the king. But in order, in his preparation for the assault, He started to learn calligraphy because he understood the the connection between the pen, the brush, and the sword. And he thought this was going to take him to the level where he could defeat the king. But in his journey, in his delving into the calligraphy and the symbolism and the beauty of the art, he takes this deeper journey so that when he's finally face-to-face with the king, he sees the king's true heart. He understands that for the greater good, He can't kill the king. Because what the king had done and what the king was doing was unifying China, reunifying these warring states. As brutal as his conquest would be, it was far better than what was going to happen if those states kept fighting each other and the bloodshed and and the the torn lives that would occur. He sees all that because he has taken this deeper journey into his art and he doesn't kill the king. So here comes Nameless and Broken Sword is trying to get these things across, but he realizes he can't defeat him physically and he can't convince him because nobody convinces you of your own hero's journey. You've got to take the journey. So what does he do? He gives him two calligraphies to interpret. And the first one, the symbol of it, could be translated, all under heaven or our land. And it comes from a Chinese proverb that says that you can only enjoy life when all under heaven are enjoying life and you will suffer as all under heaven suffer. And so Nameless realizes that there is something here, he doesn't quite get it yet, but there's something here about being completely unified with all the people, instead of just a narrow agenda that he's on. His journey is about killing the king. That's all he can think about. That's all he can process. And now he's given something like this. The second calligraphy is only interpreted in the very final frames of the film. And the way that it interprets is in three parts. The first is a unity of man and sword. And the idea here, in the development of martial arts, you get to the point where there, the sword is completely a part of the warrior. There is no distinction. It's all one thing. You know, it, it, it's, it's completely unified. The second one is the... See if I'm going to be able to get this right. It is the unity of man and sword or the the sword moves into the heart of the warrior first one is the unity the second one is the sword moves into the heart so at this point the the martial arts have been internalized to the extent that two warriors can stand across from each other and the whole battle can be fought just in their minds just in looking into the eyes of their opponent and they never have to strike the first blow because they know exactly what would happen. It's so internalized with them. And the third is the absence of sword in hand or heart, to get to the point where battles never need to be fought at all because the warrior has moved beyond the need for such tactics. As Nameless considers these, and just in those last final frames, as he's face to face with the king, he realizes the same thing that Broken Sword has realized. And he lays down his life for the good of all under heaven. He realizes what the journey is really about. He takes that deep dive and comes back up the other side. Jesus does the same thing, doesn't he? You know, because of who Jesus is theologically to us, we forget that he was a human being living in a family, a family of human beings. Do you know that in Mark 3, there is a, a line that Jesus is, is teaching in a house that's overflowed and, to, and spilling out into the streets, and his family comes? His brothers and sisters, maybe even presumably his mother, they just say his family comes, and they say, we need to take him. We, we basically need to take custody of him because he's crazy. He is out of his mind. The Greek literally is, he is beside himself. They think he's nuts. Absolutely think he's nuts. Another time that he is teaching in in a person's house and his disciples come to him and say, hey, your brothers and sisters and your mother are outside. He said, who are my brothers and sisters and my mother? Look around you. These people right here who are with me, who listen to my words, they are my brothers and sisters and mother. You think there was a little dissension in Jesus' house? Maybe just a smidge? Think about it. He was the eldest He was the eldest of his family. Presumably, Joseph is dead, right? You don't hear about him. And so that means Jesus was now the patriarch. He was the leader of the family. He was the one charged with taking care of his mother, taking care of the family business, taking care of the estate. And yet, he's constantly being pulled sideways off that track. At a certain point, when he's only in his late 20s, maybe 30, he goes to be baptized in the river by his cousin. And then, immediately, he is called out into the wilderness for 40 days to face down these three challenges laid at him by the adversary. Do you think his family was happy about that? Do you think that was easy for Jesus to leave the comforts of his home such as they were? Poor people, yes, but still, they had a business, they had homes, they had family, they had connection. They didn't want Jesus to leave. They thought he was crazy. For him to do what he did cost something. And then he goes out into the wilderness, and he has to face down what any of us think this journey is about. We all think the journey is about the things that we produce, the things we accomplish, the tasks and the challenges that are presented to us. So what does Jesus have to face down? He has to face down turning stones into bread. Which Henry Nouwen said beautifully is the call or the the compulsion to relevance, right? He was asked to, to bow down to the adversary so that he would be given control of all the kingdoms of the earth. That's the need for power. And then he would say, hey, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple so that angels will bear you up. That would have been in front of adoring crowds. That's the compulsion for celebrity to be spectacular. All of these things Jesus had to face down. He had to figure out, just as we do, just as everyone else in the Bible or everyone else in the monomyth has had to figure out what this journey was really about. It wasn't about what we think it's about. It's always about something different. And then Jesus is able to come back to his community and bring with him those gifts, to bring the good news to bring the knowledge of the love of his Father to a thirsty people. That's the hero's journey. That's every single one of our journeys. How do we balance the necessary duality, the necessary function of our egoic minds, our brains, that all it can do is distinguish, compare, and contrast? How do we balance that with this sense of unity, this sense of oneness, this sense of connection? This is how we do it. We have to, at some point, become willing to lay down our lives, metaphorically, to lay down our life's work, to lay down the accomplishments, to lay down the need for all of the busyness, all the things that we think our journey is about, and to sink deeper beneath that and find the unity that lies beneath the surface, to take the hero's journey, to answer the call, and the way to do that so often is to allow yourself to be blown off course, to allow yourself to make the mistakes. We try so hard not to make a mistake, but it's the mistake. It's the twister that comes and blows you off to Oz, even when you're trying to go back to Auntie M. right? That's what happens in life. We fight and resist those changes so hard. We fight so hard to keep on track the expectations that we have for our lives, the track that we have for our lives, that we never allow ourselves. And even when we do get blown off course, even when we do fail, even when circumstances take us, trying to take us on a hero's journey, we just whine and complain about how horrible that is. And why me? And we become victimized rather than seeing it as the opportunity to look beneath and behind that curtain, to look underneath the surface of things and see something different. Can we allow ourselves that kind of fluidity to flow with what life is throwing at us rather than rigidly trying to keep on with what we think until we let go of all the machinations getting broomsticks and doing whatever we have done to try to get back home again and realize that we're already wearing the slippers. Until we realize that even if the child of promise dies, that the journey continues and will be fulfilled. Until we get to that moment of release, we are not going to get the point of our journeys. We will not be able to come full circle. And we'll end with this. Um, This is from the chapter of my book, uh, Western Songlines, called Hero. As with all these great heroes, when we answer our own calls and set off, the journey is never what we think it is. The issue at hand is never the real issue, because the physical task to which we set ourselves can only find completion externally in our roles and accomplishments, firmly staking our sense of identity, meaning, and purpose somewhere over the rainbow, Whether we set off in life to build a business or a legacy or even to feed the hungry or save souls for God, our true purpose is not the completion of any of these. But if we are true to the physical task in the course of facing the inevitable trials along the way, we begin to learn about life, to see relationship where we previously only saw separation, to draw connections between dots that seemed previously unconnected. Almost in spite of ourselves and regardless of our stated task, If we persist long enough, we will stumble across the trailhead to Jesus' way. Fall down the rabbit hole, and if we're willing, let the real interior journey begin. A hero is not someone who sets out and successfully completes the task he or she is expected to accomplish. A hero is someone who simply sets out, and in the setting out, accomplishes the unexpected. A hero allows himself to be blown off course, allows herself to be gathered up into the eye of the whirlwind, patiently shrugs off repeated shovels of dirt dropped into the well of preconception, releases everything believed to be crucial at the outset of the journey in favor of what really is. A hero engages fully, holds nothing back, becomes willing to lay down the mission itself when a greater good presents, and becomes ultimately willing to lay down his or her own life for the good of all under heaven. A hero allows the journey to unfold at its own pace, relishing the surprise and shock of unanticipated vistas, allows the mission to be accomplished in ways never dreamed, continuing on until the circle is complete, until he or she is home again, with blessing in hand for all under heaven. Recalling T.S. Eliot, and the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. A hero is not the one who completes the journey, but the one whom the journey completes. Let's stand.